Shalom, shalom, everyone. Welcome to the Light Lab podcast. Eliana Light here, back with another episode focused on tefillah, prayer, and liturgy, where we hold the gems of our liturgy up to the light and see what shines through and play with prayer. So glad to have you join us. I hope your winter has been meaningful. I hope that any holidays you might have celebrated have been fabulous and that there has been light and joy in your life, hopefully this podcast can be just a little bit of sprinkle of a bit of that light and joy. Today, my friends, I'm very excited to present an interview with Rabbi Reuven Kimmelman, or as I came to know him first, Professor Kimmelman. Rabbi Kimmelman is a professor of classical Judaica at Brandeis University, and that's where I met him. It was my first semester of college, and I signed up to take a course on liturgy. I always loved leading tefillah, leading services. It started because I just really liked singing and being in front of people as a wonderful diva-ish child. And then I grew to love the community feeling and the singing together aspect. But it was in Professor Rabbi Kimmelman's liturgy course that I began to fall in love with liturgy as an art form, seeing its poetry and thinking about the choices that a person made in crafting the liturgy, taking language and ideas from Tanakh, from the Jewish Bible and other sacred texts, and creating these new beautiful poetic forms and seeing the Sidur as something that, again, people put together with meaning, with intention, and with choice. So I was beyond thrilled that Rabbi Kimmelman agreed to be interviewed for the podcast. But beyond that, and I'll say a little bit more of this about at the end of the episode, he will be teaching a class through the Light Lab that you are welcome to sign up for. It's a three-part course technically six, but I'll explain what that means, a three-part course on the three paragraphs and parts of the Shema, one of the central prayers and pieces of liturgy of the Jewish heritage that comes from our sacred text from the Torah. And he, I mean, it's really, like if you listen to this episode, you'll hear so many different source texts and connections. He has it all, really one of the foremost liturgists of our time. So I'm so excited for these classes. On January 25th, February 1st, and February 8th, Rabbi Kimmelman will be teaching from 3 to 4 Eastern Standard Time. And then the days after that, on those Thursdays, January 26th, February 2nd, and February 9th, at 7 p.m., I will be doing a deep dive, which is a light lab mode of exploration into pieces of liturgy where we do chavruta, partnered study. We look at very particular questions. We sing through or chant through different pieces of the prayer to move it through us, and then we respond in our own way. More information about all of that, including links to sign up and share, can be found in the description of this very episode. But for now, I'll just tell you a little bit more about Rabbi Kimmelman before we start our episode. 
Like we mentioned before, Rabbi Kimmelman is a professor at Brandeis University. He's also the rabbi of Beth Abraham New England Sephardic Congregation of New England. He specializes in the history of classical Judaism with a focus on the history and poetics of the Jewish liturgy. His forthcoming book is The Rhetoric of Jewish Prayer, a historical and literary commentary on the daily prayer book. I am so excited for that book. Oh my goodness. His other book is The Mystical Meaning of Lechado D and Kabbalat Shabbat. Professor Kimmelman's other writings focus on the literary meaning of the Bible, the interaction between Judaism and Christianity, the ethics of conflict and war, and his mentor, Abraham Joshua Heschel. We are so, so honored to be joined today by Rabbi Kimmelman. Welcome, Professor Kimmelman, Rabbi Kimmelman, Reuben. I didn't know which one to call you, so I just used all three. Thank you for being here with us today. It's a pleasure, especially in my topic. Exactly, exactly. Um, we like to start way at the beginning on this show, so I'm wondering if you could share what your relationship to tefillah was when you were growing up. Minimal. Hmm. Um... I started davening regularly, probably about the age of 14. Uh, before that, I had attended Camp Ramah, but I didn't take it very seriously. Mm. At the age of 14, I spent a year and a half in Israel in Yeshiva. That played a key role, a consequential year in my religious development and my commitment as a Jew. But I would say tefillah was not central to my life, even though it was a significant activity. I think what made it more central than anything else was my relationship with my mentor, Abraham Joshua Heschel. Mm. I studied with him for about six years. His book on prayer made a major impact upon me, and his understanding of theology opened up the gates of prayer for me. So if I had to point to something really significant or consequential in my life, I would give the proper respects to the person who was most influential in my religious life. Mm, beautiful. And I'm wondering what that shift was for you from A to B, kind of before your time with Rabbi Heschel. What was challenging or frustrating or nonsensical about prayer? What did you think the point of prayer was vis-a-vis -vis what you thought God was? And, and how did that change? I don't think you start off with a concept of God and then go to prayer. Mm-hmm. I mean, people can talk that way, but I don't know anybody who actually does that way. Most people, through prayer, change understanding of God. Mm. Heschel's great insight here was, we, we think that we pray in order to change God's plan, as if we control things. And his argument was that prayer is an invitation to God to intervene in our lives. So instead of seeing God as the object of our prayer, we become the subject of divine concern. Hmm. So the word litpaleo, which has many different meanings, but he perceived it in the reflexive as an invitation to ask God to make us the object of divine concern. So therefore the issue was not 
what will God do for me? But how does one align oneself to God's concerns? So that got me very much involved in prayers of redemption hmm. uh, in the prayer. And the other, which made a big impact upon me, was the prayer Avaraba or Vatolam. Because Avaraba Avtanu talks about ourselves as objects of divine love. In that sense, it was the opposite of the Shema, which is a commandment to love God. And the argument there is, how could you possibly love a God who doesn't love you first? So the Avaraba was placed before the Shema. Otherwise, we have a commandment to love God, which is really doesn't do much. But if you think that God is concerned about you, it's a lot easier to reciprocate concern than to initiate concern. So according to the Siddur, as opposed to, let's say, Sefer Devarim, we are commanded to love the God who loves us. And it's a lot easier to love somebody who loves you. First, you can't help but admire their taste. <laughs> but secondly is, the feeling of being loved cultivates the capacity for love. So that really kind of turned me on in the Siddur, and I never thought about the subject-object relationship until I reread Heschel intensely mm. and changed my whole attitude toward things. So I would say that's a very consequential stage in my development. Very. And I remember this teaching from when I was in your liturgy class at Brandeis, my very first semester. And I can say that that class, even though I had a relationship to Tfilah, but it was mostly because I loved to sing and I loved the feeling of everybody together. And I kind of knew what the words meant, but I had never looked at the Siddur as a piece of text in the way that I had looked at other Jewish text, And I had never thought about the choices that were being made by the people who wrote or edited the Siddur. And that idea of we love the God who loves us first has really stuck with me with, along with so many other teachings from that class. And I'm wondering how you got in your life from this kind of it, renewed interest or understanding of tefillah into looking at liturgy as your academic focus? Well, it first started way back in the 1960s. For some reason, I don't recall, I wrote an article in Hebrew on the meaning of the Shema. I do no longer recall what stimulated that, but it was published in Shana B'Shana, which is a, a journal of the Israeli chief rabbinate. I got interested in the Shema. And I would say I've rewritten that article maybe now six times. Mm. Uh, it started off as a four or five page article, and it's now about 207 pages because my my growth. Now, the reason I get so excited teaching Sidur is because most of the students know the Sidur. I mean, they know it, but they don't understand it. Nor do they ever think of its literary structure, its historical development, how to go together. They don't realize how sound plays such a role in understanding. And when a prayer is said silently, it's not the same thing as said aloud. So if I say the prayer, you can hear the mems. And then you say, you can hear the ahs. And you realize there are two angelic choirs singing to each other, and you're participating in it. Now, you don't have to believe, in my opinion, in angels to appreciate the poetry of the prayer. In some sense, when you get involved in liturgy, we're involved in what I call a suspension of disbelief. <laughs> you stop disbelieving. It's like reading, seeing a movie or a novel. You know it's not true. But while you're watching it, if you want to feel it, you make it look as it real. And in making it look real, 
it becomes real. So I call the suspension of disbelief. And through suspending disbelief, means the normal skepticism, and one gets involved in it and feels it, then it becomes much more credible because you're a participant rather than a spectator. That's beautiful. I think perhaps that is the biggest takeaway from your class was allowing myself to look at the Sidur as poetry and it becomes Davka more alive and more vibrant. So it started with an interest in the Shema. I'm wondering for you, as that article evolved, what you're the core of what you're trying to get across when it comes to the Shema, which I would say is the prayer that probably most Jews are familiar with. Well, the first paragraph of the Shema, I would say, is probably known by heart by more Jews than any other line. I mean, the other paragraph. And the opening line, I would say most Jews know by heart, the Shema Yisrael. Mm -hmm. But if you ask somebody, what does the Shema Yisrael mean, right? What's its message, the structure of it, why God's name is mentioned two or three times, and why is it Shema Yisrael start in the singular and move to the plural? And even if you ask people what the word God is one, what does the word one mean? Is it one mean two? Even that would be very difficult for most people to interpret, even though everybody feels they understand it while they say it. Mm -hmm. But if you ask them what they mean by what they're saying, they begin to stutter. Even more so, if you take the second paragraph, I mean, the actually first paragraph of the Shema, not realizing that it's, it has a literary structure to it, and the first line should be followed by a colon. So it goes, There are three elements there. Then you put a colon. Once you do that, you realize that the rest of the paragraph is explicating what would it mean, what would it mean, and in the most extreme expression, what does mean? So if you look at the Shema as a way of interpreting that line, then you see it as a literary unit. Once you see it as a literary unit, you realize that if you put it out of order, or if you miss the word, you miss the point. So you have to really pay attention to the sounds, the poetry, probably also the history, and together, meaning emerges. But you just don't read a line and say it means the following. Hmm. So this attention to language, the attention to sound and poetry, is extraordinarily significant in appreciating the, the Siddur. After all, don't forget, the Siddur was not originally read. Hmm. The Siddur was heard. People don't realize that. We read hmm. with our eyes. In antiquity, nobody read with their eyes, and almost all prayers are recited out loud. Therefore, it was a it was a primarily an oral experience, not a visual experience. And mm -hmm. we have to restore much of that. And of course, a great chazan, here, for example, the Kol Nidre. I mean, without the music, what is Kol Nidre? Mm. Most people don't even know the words. But people want to be in synagogue to hear what? Those sounds. Those sounds evoke all types of things. And it's evocative sound, which makes it. In the Natana Tokyo, for example, a great chazan can make you really feel your life is at stake. But I mean, it's not just the reading of the word as, as primary, but without the hearing, because only the hearing gets you emotionally involved. It's rarely that you read something, you can emotionally feel it, like you hear it, and you put two together, and you shake it all about. That's what it's all about. I think it's interesting to think about this from an accessibility perspective also, because most of the people who are in synagogues are not fluent in Hebrew. They don't understand word for word what they mean. And sometimes if we look across to the translation that's on the page, it 
doesn't mean much if we just take it at face value, if we take it literally, but the sound is something that we, that we can get carried away in, which I think so is beautiful. Oral, oral, put the two together, oral, oral. Yes, we need both. We need both. The convergence, that's why my favorite thing I enjoy doing more than anything else is teaching rabbis the Siddur. Hmm. Because if I teach them, they'll teach others. So there's a ripple effect. And it's, I love it when I have the rabbis and their Reformed, Conservative, Orthodox rabbis all in the class, because there's a common denominator, which is ignorance of the Siddur. <laughs> and then it's a common illumination, because they all the major text in the rabbi is not the Chumash. The major text for rabbi is the Siddur. And if he understands it, he'll make others understand it. And I think that appreciation of the Siddur is going to lead to revival of appreciation of prayer. Hmm. So what would you like those rabbis and by extension, those of us listening to know what is misunderstood? Let's first talk about the Siddur as a whole, as a corpus, as a unit. Well, that's a fascinating question. What, what is there, for example, I just published an essay entitled The Theology of the Siddur. And I began looking for material to research on the subject and found that nobody had ever written an essay on the theology of the Siddur. There is people who write on specific prayers, but nobody says, does a Shachrit service as a whole have a message? And is it coherent? So that's a, a, appreciate the theology of the Siddur and its liturgy. But to know to do that, you have to understand its history, when it got into the Siddur, and to what sense is it coherent? Let's just start off with something very common. Adon Olam. There is no prayer better known than Adon Olam because you can sing it to anything. Right? I even heard it one time sung to Silent Night. I mean, the person didn't know, <laughs> it. Didn't know it. He was a Sephardic Jew. But wow. he happened to be, uh, was happening in December, and he was walking in a mall, and he came to synagogue, and someone told why don't you sing a tune for Adon Olam? So he sang to the tune of Silent Night. My point is, anything you can sing to Adon Olam. Now, one of the most popular songs of Adon Olam goes Adon Olam Hashem Melach, and ends up Hashem Li Velo Ira, Adon Olam, which means God is my God. I do not fear. Who do, who do I not fear? Adon Olam. Hmm. Now, why would a person end a prayer saying, I do not fear Adon Olam? Apparently, he has no understanding of what the words mean. He follows what? The tune makes it. Hmm. But here's remarkable. If you walk up to the average person and said, what does the word Adon Olam mean? He would say, Adon Olam is master of the world. Almost everybody translates it. Some translations get it right. They say Adon Olam is eternal master, which actually it is, mm. because Adon Olam is written by a Spanish poet. Spanish poets mimicked biblical Hebrew. The word Olam in Tanakh only means temporal. Later on, it took on a spatial meaning. Mm -hmm. But if it weren't for that, if you look, if you read Adon Olam, then every phrase begins with a temporal phrase. So you say Adon Olam, next line is Beterem Ko, Beterem is prior. That means temporal. Then it says, Acharei, which is after. Then it says, Azai, or Le'it. So all the terms here are temporal. Hmm. So the argument is that God is an eternal God, not that he's God of the world. That is other places. Here we establish God's eternity, and the theology is, since God preceded creation, God succeed creation, because God is not dependent upon anything. Therefore, what? God is eternal. And it's this eternal God who is my God. That's your thesis. Mm -hmm. But if you misunderstand the Hebrew, Olam, 
because you're thinking in rabbinic Hebrew terms, not in biblical Hebrew terms, you miss the point. That's why understanding uh, philology is important, history is important, literature and poetry is important, and theology is important, but they have to be all done together. It totally opens it up in a new way for me also, because to say the the God of eternity, that which is constant mm -hmm. and not dependent on anything else in the universe, I have a relationship with, and that is what makes me feel safe. It totally changes it, at least for me. So yeah, thank you for you, that. You just summarized, I don't know, the first six line deals with God's sovereignty and eternity. Mm -hmm. And the last four lines said this sovereign, eternal God cares about me. Therefore, what? No reason to fear. It's remarkable. That structure, and that its structure is so good, you can, you cannot find a tune that you can't yeah. apply to what? To Adonolam. The beat is just superb. And that's why it caught on. It's superb. And I also find, oftentimes for myself, one might think because I'm a musician, I would want to sing all of the tefillot. But I think it actually causes me to listen more intensely to the words if I read it. Like, I love just reading Adonolam. Adonolam asher malach b'terem kol right? Just hearing it, right. it, it gives me chills in a way that even a beautiful melody couldn't do that because it's letting the words stand on their own. Well, you can see this specifically in the spelling out of the divine name without pronouncing it. Hu haya, hu hoveh, hu hiya. You can almost breathe it. You see it? Hu haya. If you don't breathe it, it's like elokaini shemashenatatabi atabrata atayitzarta. So a prayer about the soul mm. is understood through breathing, because the more you breathe, the more you, the word soul and breathing, of course, in Hebrew is the same word. So the Elokai Shema makes you breathe by having the ah endings. You see that? Ah, ah, ah. So you become aware of your breathing while you're talking about the Nishama. And the Nishama in the Bible is called Nishmat Elohim. God breathe into you the soul of life. So in breathing, it becomes more credible than if you sit there, not breathing. In the Adonalama, it says, Vuhu haya, vuhu hove, vuhu yeah, past, present, and future. It's connecting my breath to the everlasting temporal nature of God. It's connecting that spirit together, right? Meaning my breath, the part of me that is, I, I might say, like divine, if that's part of God, that's also forever. My breath is the same breath that has been here since creation. Mm. That even adds, I think, at least to me, a more spiritual that's depth to it, language. just saying it. Because even Adon Alam, every line ends up, right? Yukra, Nikra, Sara, Ekra, Ira, Ah, Ah, Ah. All ten lines ends with an Ah. So the rhyme scheme, even Adonai Melech, Adonai Malach, Adonai Yimloch, you see that? Mm -hmm. In English, I say, he is, he was, he is, he will be, is not as strong as who haya, who hove, who yiya. It's a different ballgame. It totally is. Are are there other prayers in particular that you find to be the most misunderstood that you would want the rabbis and the cantors to teach the people or any of our say, listeners? Yeah. The two yeah. most misunderstood prayers are probably outside of Adonamam, the two most beloved prayers. The mm. first is Kaddish. And the second is Lechadodi. Ooh, yes, I would say neither one has been properly understood. Let's start with Kaddish. The Kaddish has nothing to do with P 
people who are deceased. That's called Kaddish Atom, which is a late development in the Kaddish. Probably kicks in around the 12th century, after the Crusades. The Kaddish is primarily a prayer for redemption. And the redemption comes about by making God's great name and sanctified. But originally, the Kaddish was a bridge prayer between Yishtabach and the Borahu. That's its original location at the end of Pesukia de Zimra. How do we know this? Because the language of the Kaddish mimics the language of Yishtabach. If you take the Kaddish and take the Yishtabach, you'll find overwhelmingly common terminology. Just to give you an example, the opening two words of the Kaddish are Yidgadal or Yidkadash. Gadol v'kadosh. Yishtabach begins ha'el ha'melech ha'gadol v'kadosh. Okay? Now, the second part of the of the Kaddish is Yehei Shmei Rabah Mavorah Elam Omei Amaya. Now, that in Aramaic is almost identical to the response of the Borachu, which you say, Boruch Adonai HaMavorach Le'olam Vo'ed. Hmm. Both lines have three elements. A reference to God, the word, a form of the word Baruch, and the phrase of eternity. Right? So those are the three basic elements of ancient prayer. Reference to God, using the word Baruch, and referring to God as eternal. They are found in Yeheshmi Rabbah in Aramaic. They're found in the response of the Baruch in Hebrew. So you see that originally it was a marker to bridge the gap between Yishtabach and Baruch. Why do you need to bridge it? Because in, in the ancient times, about 12th century Germany, we found also evidence in Egypt, a person had a right to stop the service before they moved on to the Shema, if he had a complaint against the congregation. Or it was a poor man who felt that his needs were not taken care of. He could stop the service and make a complaint. So now the question was, how do you get back into the service? After all, we just finished Yishtabach. We have to move on to Baruchu. So we have a prayer whose function is to bridge the two. And its content is praising God. There are ten words of prayer. Strangely, we call it the Kaddish. And the opening word is Yitgadal. The word Kaddish doesn't appear there. And the Kaddish first appears in the Siddur of Rav Sajagon, and he refers to it as Yitgadal. Hmm. So how did the name go from the opening word, which makes sense, most prayers in Judaism are called by the opening word. The Adon Olam is the opening word. So why don't we say, call it Yitgadal? How did it move from Yitgadal to Kaddish? Kaddish is not only, not only the first word, but the word itself doesn't appear in the prayer. It's, it's an amazing transformation what happened there. So it's a whole discussion. We could spend the whole time on, on it, but it's misunderstood in its function. And if you see it as an extension of Yishtabach, then it becomes a marker of the service. Then it became a marker of the finale of the service. So it turns out that the eschatology, or the understanding of redemption, of the Kaddish is almost identical to Aleinu. Because mm. both of them were competing to be the finale of the service. Now we do both. So, for example, almost all schemes of redemption, for example, the Amidah, talk about restoration. Restoration, rebuilding of Jerusalem, restoration of exiles, coming of the Messiah, all these are restorative visions. Hmm. None of them are in the Kaddish or the Aleinu. The Aleinu and the Kaddish only have one thesis. 
the universal extension of divine sovereignty recognized by all humanity. That combines the two. So Kaddish became kind of a eschatological finale, just like the Elenu is. But its original role was to bridge the gap between Yishtabach and Baruch I would say that that understanding is quite rare. I wanted to stay on the Kaddish just for a second. And first of all, to also say that the image of someone interrupting a service mm -hmm. is very powerful to say, we're all here as a community praying and I feel slighted by the community or I don't feel like I'm a part of the community. We have to fix this here and now. I cannot imagine that happening in most synagogues today. And it just seems, but it seems to make sense if we're praying as a community and this is our time together. What might that have looked we're like? Praying together here. For example, you know, according to Jewish law, a, if a people do not like the rabbi, it's not a big deal. That means the rabbi is partially effective. But if they don't like the chazan, you can't be a chazan. Hmm. If, if people know, the, the halacha is, if the chazan knows there's somebody in the congregation who dislikes him because he's done him wrong, and he and he can't be the chazan. No, he has to re reconcile it because a chazan is a shaliach tzibor. How can hmm. I represent somebody I don't like? Hmm. So the rabbi doesn't have that responsibility. Get it? In fact, if everybody yeah. likes the rabbi, he's probably not doing his job. But a chazan is supposed to be beloved because he represents you. It's remarkable. Hmm. So in those days, if you, to, or a creation, what about somebody who's been slighted by the community? Or a poor man who's about to take care of? So you had a right to introduce, inter, uh, introduce inter, interfere. Interject. Interject, no, interrupt, actually, the service. Mm. Yeah. That stopped about the 12th century. But for about the 10th and 12th century, we have evidence both from Germany and in Egypt. So Sephardic and Ashkenazic, where people had a right to stop the service, and the community had to deal with it. Remarkable. I mean, if anything, create a sense of community, and you're not slighted. And of course, who stopped the service? It wasn't the wealthy people. They always got what they wanted anyhow. It was right. what? Those who disregarded. So it yeah. really created communal unity, a remarkable phenomenon. And it also... I don't think it does it anymore, though. Yeah, I don't think so, but it also brings to life the words I'm thinking now of the Haftarah for Yom Kippur, you know, God really saying, none of this actually matters if you're not going to do right, right you by your community. Um, and to say that it's not just about these sacrifices don't matter, but these prayers, you know, if right. they're not leading us towards better community. Yeah, that's really powerful. I'm also wondering, partially because I went to a Shiva minion this morning, so it's on my mind, um, when you see the development of the mourner's Kaddish and kind of what role that fills in the Siddur. Well, what you see is when you went to a Shiva minion, mm -hmm. first place, the person, someone died. Now, yes. if someone dies and they're very close to you, you don't feel very sociable especially if you lost a, a parent who was not over 80, get it, young, mm -hmm. or you lost a child, which is really terrible, it happens, right? You really start, what, insulating yourself. And you really feel that nobody has any idea what you're going through. Secondly is, since I'm a rabbi, I'm amazed how many people at a show are angry. The most common phenomenon are women who are angry at their husbands for having died on them. Hmm. If he had been a little more healthy and considered, he would still be around. Why? He left me alone. Instead of mourning, there, hmm. there's anger there. They don't always express it until you talk to them quietly. But there's a lot of anger. Then there's a lot of anger against God. Why do you do it to me? And almost everybody feels this in the first three days. So hmm. their anger at the deceased, but frequently anger at God, 
And also they get angry at the community. How can you, you don't really know what I'm going through, even though you talk. So it's a kind of, of I would say, um, disinvolvement in the community, both theologically and socially. And the last thing I want to do at that moment is praise God. What does a minion make me do? The minion makes me cause others to say, Yehei, Shmei, Rabbah. Remarkable. Secondly is, I can't say Kaddish unless what? They're there, so I need them. And frequently, we go to many synagogues, if the Kaddishes don't show up, they don't have a minion. Mm -hmm. So if the Kaddish creates a mutual sense of responsibility. We need each other to fill what we need. And when I have to go to minion every day, I don't feel it initially, but I do it before you know I become a, a major part of the minion. I need them. They need me. I got to show up. So I get re-engaged in the community. And I cause others to praise God, which kind of removes my cynicism, which is after mm. death. And frequently, it's also nihilism. And then there's a lot of what? <clears throat> Anger, which people translate as atheism, which is kind of a joke. Oh, I'm so angry at God, I won't believe in him. I mean, it's almost like childish. <laughs> right? What they're really saying is, I'm angry at God, as if to believe in him is like, I'm going to give him something he doesn't deserve. But in the meantime, you end up what? Affirming her existence. It's remarkable. Mm. But you don't have the logic of mourning. It's not the logic of normal life. And it takes right. a good week to overcome it, a month. And when your spouse dies, in my experience, a year is not enough. It takes about 18 months. But you lose a spouse who you loved, that scar remains forever. Right. And it seems like a beautiful meshing of kind of the prayer on its own and the theological implications of it meeting the real people who are saying it and the community that is a part of it that's really beautiful the second prayer that you said was the most misunderstood was the lachado d so i would love to hear <laughs> i would love to hear what you have to say about our, our beloved lachado d well I, I have a whole book on lachado d in hebrew it's called lachado d Kabbalat shabbat it argues. What does that title mean in English? In English, it's Rechadadi and Kabbalat Shabbat, the mystical meaning. Hmm. Okay, so it's the title. The, the title is called The Mystical Meaning of Rechadadi and Kabbalat Shabbat. It's a Hebrew book, but there's a very extensive English summary of the book. About 20% of the book is the English summary. Anyhow, the point of Rechadadi, it, it was created by Kabbalists. So you sing Lachadadi, if you're competent somewhat in Hebrew, you'll understand every line you're saying. But you'll understand no stanza. You have no idea why those lines go together. You say, Shamor v'zachor v'dibor achad. Okay. Hishmienu elamichad. Okay. Next, Hashem echad u'shmo echad. What's the connection? In other words, you cannot make sense of any stanza if you only understand it in terms of its biblical background or its rabbinic background, you have to understand it in, in virtu by virtue of its Kabbalistic background. Now, don't forget, no, the lines, each line makes oh, sense right. on its own. They don't make sense together. The stanza, if you put the lines together, it doesn't go here. Meaning, if you try to, most, almost all the words in Lachadadi are biblical, except Miyuchad, hmm. but it cannot be understood biblically. For example, Shamor v'zachor b'dibor echad is a statement in the Talmud about the nature of divine voice at Sinai. But most of the lines you will not understand if you only understand it in its rabbinic sense. Now, Chad was written by Shlomo Alkabetz. 
He was a Kabbalist in the city of Sfat, and the brother-in-law of the most famous Kabbalist of Sfat, a man called Moshe Cordovero. They probably composed Lechadadi about 1555, give or take. In any case, it was written for Kabbalists, by Kabbalists, of Kabbalists. What does that mean? That means that everything has four levels of meaning. In Kabbalistic reality, four levels of meaning. They are space, time, human, divine. So everything operates on a human level, I mean on a space, spatial level, a temporal level, a human level, and a divine level. So when you realize that all of reality has four axes, then everything you understand, you understand in four different ways. Let me give you an example. So it's the, the Talmud says, Jerusalem was not destroyed, so they desecrated hmm. within it the Sabbath. What's the connection between desecrating the Sabbath and destroying Yerushalayim? So you make up an explanation. Say, what? But in Kabbalah, they're intrinsically connected because all spatial terms have temporal coordinates. So if I asked you, what is the most holy thing in time in Judaism? You would say Shabbat. What's the most holy thing in space? Jerusalem. Therefore, the two are connected. So therefore, if I desecrate the Sabbath in Jerusalem, I desecrate sanctity in time. What do mm -hmm. I lose? Sanctity in space. Jerusalem. If I want to regain sanctity in space, I have to rededicate myself to sanctity in time. Because time and mm. space are two dimensions of the same thing. So whatever happens in space reverberates in time. Whatever happened in time reverberates in space. So Mechadadi has nine stanzas. The first two and the last one deal with Shabbat. The middle six deal with the rebuilding of Yerushalayim. Hit nari, and they're all verbs of reversal. Hit nari, hit orri, uri, uri. So if you're, I say, awake, what, you're asleep. I say, get out of the dust. You're in the dust. They're all verbs of restoration. What's the goal? To restore Yerushalayim to its sanctity. How do we restore Yerushalayim to its sanctity? By observing of Shabbat. Because time and space. Now let's look at the opening line. How many words there? Yes. Exactly <laughs> seven. <laughs> right? Good. Now, which makes sense is the Talmud out of the Sabbath. Now, who is Dodi? <clears throat> who is my beloved in this scenario? That's a good question. Who is my beloved in this scenario? It's a great question. So, according to the Ramak, which is Alkabitz's brother in law, the word Dodi is a code word for the divine name because David and He are interchangeable with regard to the divine. Mm -hmm. I can abbreviate God's name by saying David, put a slash above it, He, or a slash above it. So Dodi has four letters. Whoa. If you spell it backwards, it's Yud, Dalit, Vav, Dalit. Yud, hey, Vav, hey. If you replace every Dalit by a hey, what do you get? Yud plus hey plus Vav plus hey. Mm. Now, the point being that nothing is as it appears. Mm -hmm. Now, it's not because what appears is wrong. It's that everything is more than it appears. So when I say my beloved, <clears throat> I can refer also to what? To the divine. So now let's try this out. I'm talking to my beloved God. Both of us are going to go right, greet the Kala. Now, who is the Kala? Well, the Kala has four dimensions. 
They are space, time, human, divine. What space? The Kama is Yerushalayim. Isaiah refers to Yerushalayim as Kalilatayofi, as a bride. But also, Kama is also what? Shabbat is called a bride. Not only that, mm. one's wife is called a bride. Not only that, the Shekhinah is referred to as a bride. So I'm going toward Shabbat. I'm going toward the rebuilding of Yerushalayim. I'm reestablishing the relationship mm. with my human beloved in order to link up with my divine beloved. What's what I just said? Because according to Kabbalah, a man is called a palga. A palga means he's half. He can't become whole till he has a woman. When the woman and man become whole, only as a whole, W-H-O-L-E, can the uni 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 hmm. can they, um, unite with the Shekhinah. The Shekhinah does not unite with half elements. It only unites with whole elements. But every male and female is only half. Together they become a whole. So therefore, I'm going to greet my human bride. I'm going to greet my divine bride. I'm going to greet Shabbat and Yerushalayim. And how do you know this? The last two words, Penei Shabbat mm. Kabbalah. So Penei Shabbat becomes what? Penei Kama. Right. Otherwise, you would say, mm. Penei Kama. A Bedeccan ceremony, you go to the Kama. But the Kama is what? You see how the word goes? And what's the Kabbalah? It should say, you. Nikabah is mm. we. Because God and Israel have a rendezvous. When do they meet? On Shabbat. You see how it goes? <clears throat> Now, if you want to even go stronger, you wouldn't believe this. The You know how many letters there are? Exactly 15. 15 in Kabbalah stands for the first two letters of the divine name, Yud and Hey. Yud is 10, Hey is 5. Hmm. The last phrase of the opening line, the, the refrain, has 11 letters. Vav, Hey. So what are you spelling out? Yud plus Hey plus Vav plus Hey. Because the function of Kabbalah yeah. in doing a mitzvah is unifying the divine. That brings about the reparation of the world. That's a tikkun. So in saying, you're doing an act of yichud. Now the word yichud rings on many levels. Yichud is husband-wife relationship, but it's also human-divine relationship. Because the same word combines both, and that is the word davek. So in the book, in, the, in chapter 2 of Genesis, male mm. and female are in Deuteronomy, so the both Deuteronomy and Genesis use the same word cleaving, davak, to understand the divine human relationship and the husband-wife relationship. Remarkable. So the two go together. And Lachadid is all based on that. So if you every stanza, you have to understand on four different levels. And if you do, it suddenly becomes coherent. So everybody loves it because you can sing it beautifully. Everybody right. loves to sing it. They love the tune and they feel very romantic while they're singing it. But they don't realize they're only standing on one level. And to really appreciate it, to know all four levels. Every stanza is written on four levels and it suddenly it will all make sense if you understand it Kabbalistically. It's mind-blowing. And I think even because I know personally I have trouble in my life with the Kabbalistic nature that is very binary in, in Kabbalah. There is male and there is female. And I don't necessarily see that in the world, but still about coming together with other people in 
intimacy and closeness in any sort of relationship, it's really powerful. And I think it, it, it brings up this important thing that I learned in your class that I continue to learn from you and that I try to show through the light lab is, you know, we would read the Torah. Mm -hmm. We, we don't take any line on its own ever. It's surrounded by commentaries and we want to learn different opinions and, um, who, how is it translated differently and what do different people say about it? And yet the Siddur, we so often take at face value and then we're missing all of this richness. The problem is, of course, that in the act of prayer, in the potentially emotional, personal, vulnerable act of prayer, is there a chance for us to stop and learn these things? How do you see the kind of more academic learning or the digging in to these gems of the liturgy? What place do you see that having in prayer practice? How, how might that be balanced? Well, actually, you, you made a very insightful statement. A chumash, a classical chumash, is surrounded with commentary. So we always mm -hmm. we study chumash with mefarshim. Rashi, Ibn Ezra, Ramban, right? Most siddurs, in a, in especially those translated into English, come without commentary. Now, more and more, the different movements mm -hmm. of almost each one put out a siddur recently with commentary. Reform, Mishkan Tefillah, Conservative, Rev uh, Shalem, so there's, and even the Orthodox now have several. One put out by the RCA itself, and one put out, and the other one put out by uh, the former chief rabbi of England, modern Orthodox. And then, of course, art school, you have your right wing Orthodox. Now, almost all of them have commentary. Very little of the commentary mm -hmm. deals with literary and historical issues. Most of the commentary of almost all these movements, except probably the Reform, was written by the only one that was written by a professional liturgist. Almost all of them are sermonics and horatory. So if you read the modern Orthodox one, it's full of Soloveitchik. If you read the Art Scroll, it's full of right wing guys. You get it? If you read the conservatives, it's full of poetry and things like that. There is some illumination of the actual text, but there's almost no room or place for a literary development. Now, the poetry, for example, Leif Shalem does the best job in laying out this, the, the prayer so you see the poetry. So many of the Shidurim, which is mm. poetry, they write it as prose. You don't even know it rhymes. Mm -hmm. So the layout on the page, like reading E.E. E. Cummings, for example. I mean, if you made it to prose, you want what's going on there. The layout in the page is significant, and it's significant to poetry. So we're getting better. We have a long way to go, which is why I, I mm. I'm, I'm not publishing a book entitled The Rhetoric of the Liturgy. And it's an historical and literary commentary to the daily prayer book. And it takes every single prayer in the liturgy, in the, in the morning shacharit service, explaining its historical development, its literary structure, and what makes it work as a prayer. So, but it, but take a full book. One day, maybe I can shorten it, put it into actually a siddur, but it, it's, it takes a lot of um, background to give the information, just like we did in Lachad Dodi. How are you gonna when I just explain the opening line of how did he how would I put that on the page? Get it? It would take up maybe a third of the page already. We should put out what is called just like the JPS puts out a chumash with extensive commentary, which has probably done wonders for the understanding of the Torah. Hopefully, one day we'll do the same with the Siddur. We have commentary, but not, not an extensive literary and historical commentary to make sense. How does this selection become prayerful? 
Well, I'm very excited for, for your book. I think it's so important. And I think we can find spaces like this podcast, hopefully other classes and connections that we can host, you know, here at the Light Lab to give people the space to study. You know, there's Torah study in, on a, you know, Tuesday morning at a synagogue is separate from the reading of the Torah on Shabbat. And yet if you go to one, it informs the other. I'm wondering then in your own prayer life, just as a person, as a Jewish person, how has your academic work in the liturgy informed your prayer life? What's transformed it? I say Adonoram, I can't mm. say, I can't just, it's no longer a song. It's theological poetry. You get it? Or even the Shema. And the Chadodi, my gosh, right? Uh, I can't rush through it anymore. It, mm. it prevents me from rushing through a prayer. I got to slow down. And I got to think what I'm saying, and I got to see how the words fit together. And then, you, when you, in my sense, mm -hmm. I work intellectually than emotionally. Some people, they're all different types of people. <laughs> There's no reason arguing for the the um, preferability of one over the other. But I work intellectually. By mm -hmm. intellectually, I get myself emotionally involved. But if it doesn't appeal to me intellectually, I have a very difficult time emoting. Other people work the reverse. So each person has to find out what, what kind of works for them and what how does it work. So for some, mm -hmm. and also very important is nigunim, extraordinarily important. Uh, to have the right nigun, to a, a good nigun, the best in the business is Chabad. Chabad has 10 nigunim more than that, but some of them are really prayerful. Mm -hmm. It's almost difficult to sing them without feeling prayerful. They do, but there are quite a few others. Of course, nowadays we have Karabach, we have Debbie Friedman. I mean, there's no shortage of people. And if you go, you go online, you'll see all types of podcasts of people putting out prayers singing songs <laughs> the number of women with guitars who are now singing prayers yeah. online They're is galore there. right no no it's it is very enriching extraordinarily enriching uh the worst thing mm. is to have prayer dominated by a single gender that's absurd you get it you need women doing it you need men doing it and each people people bring to bear what they are so it's mm -hmm. we we need multi multi vocality i would call it and also people explain the prayers because what you who you are you bring to what you analyze who you are and your emotion, what makes sense to you. And therefore, hmm. no single individual can do this for everybody. And it's very important. By the way, in, in commentary, is very few hmm. uh, Sidur commentaries, almost none, which have feminine voices. Leif Shalem is now cited several poems by women. And Mishkan Tefillah, the Reform, do it. Get it? But I mean, the women's voice, especially, I think, if I'm not mistaken, Half of the non-Orthodox mm -hmm. rabbin now are women. So I've been led to believe. And the other movements, it's about 50-50, something like that. So the and, and, and the women are therefore contributing major elements, which the male mm. experience, male experience was frequently meant the human experience. And therefore, if it wasn't male, it got excluded. So now we're hearing feminine voices, theological voices, liturgical voices, and it's clearly enriching the whole possibilities and allowing mm. women to find their place. Uh, it's a major thing. So Lachadudi, it'd be a great one. I, I want to go back quickly as we kind of wrap up this conversation together to what you said about needing to take your time, because I have found that ever since that class with you, the more I learn, the more I fall in love with the liturgy, the slower I have to take it. I'll spend the entire time focused on one phrase that feels so potent or powerful or one paragraph or one idea. 
And yet the Siddur developed over the course of thousands of years to have so many words in it. What is the balance? How do we balance that both as an individual person who's in a service and the leader's going to do what they do? And as people who are planning and leading services, how do we make space for both the maybe we feel halakhically obligated to say all of the words, or we like the kind of chugging forward meditative motion of saying all the words, balanced with being able to savor these beautiful gems of text that we have? Well, if you could keep a secret, I'll tell you. Great. <laughs> I assume you can keep a secret. I'm just worried about the people you tell whether they can keep it as well. So, so listeners, you gotta so, keep. No, meaning is, <laughs> when I pray alone, not in a minion, mm -hmm. uh, I will sometimes skip parts of Sukhita Zimra because if I have to, otherwise I'll be there all morning long. Yes. So I'd Same. rather focus. And by the way, the ashray is so rich. Ugh. One time, I said to one of my teachers, "You know what? If you really say ashray well, you can just you can. That's it. You've said everything." Mm -hmm. It is so rich in its poetry and its structure. And if you appreciate it, there's just too much in there. Now, I'm also a rabbi of a Sephardic synagogue. They say everything out loud. Mm. And we sing the whole Az Yashir and Shabbat. We sing it out loud. It takes a long time. But boy, is it different mm -hmm. when it's sung out loud by a whole congregation and a tune which moves you. So it takes we takes a lot more time to pray. And a lot of it is because we say everything out loud. And, and, and the more you sing it, the better it is. And the best thing is to start out with a nigun, a wordless nigun, before you begin. In other words, to set the mood. All this takes time. So we do in our synagogue, although I, I'm not publicizing it, is Musaf, we frequently do, just do Kedusha. Mm -hmm. We don't repeat it. We have a rule in our synagogue that if we go over a certain amount of time, that we do not do the full Musaf. Uh, take and repeat repetition of the Musaf can take another five, mm -hmm. six, seven, eight, ten minutes, especially because we do Birkat Kohanim all the time, twice on Shabbat. So we have a certain time, and people know we're going to get done and start it. The result is we have more people coming at the mm -hmm. beginning. And people used to come in half hour late, an hour late, right? More, and we begin, we have more people there because they know we're going to end on time. And everything done, we're going to sing. So we, we have very little mumbling, a lot of singing, and it's, of course, everybody sings together, which makes it much more meaningful. So I would say, if you have to, uh, the, the, actually, the Torah Shulchan Aruch says, it's much better to have mat the kavanah than mm. harbe without kavanah. So this realization that the devotional element is significant as the halakhic requirements, especially with suki de zimra, the halakhic does not demand mm. the whole thing. You get it? So I would say, if you, it depends what your service is, but if you don't spend a little bit time of pre, um, prepping yourself by either nigunim, or some people actually do the birchot hashachar, they act them out. They'll go like this, they'll cover their eyes, and they'll say the brachot bokeh ivrim. You get it? Or malbish aruim. So they act each one out, because originally they mm -hmm. were said when the thing was done. Now we say it all together in a service, which kind of ruined it, because they were originally prayers mm -hmm. of hana'ah. That's called not shavach. Shavach is praise. It's applicable all the time. Hanam means when you're mm -hmm. saying it, you have to have a sensual experience. You've got to feel something. You say malbish arumim, they would do it. They would get dressed. Now, when you say malbish arumim, you're using the exact same words that the Torah uses when God garbs Adam and Eve. 
right? This is it. Vayal bishem, they were arumim. So it's remarkable. You hear it, not only that, you experience it, but it's like what? <clears throat> you hear the biblical echoes. And many of the brachot malbish arumim. Right? Almost each one of them has a biblical echo. So not only are you saying it by yourself, you're kind of standing in line of a thousand generations. And you're going back, to, as it were, to the original human beings. It's pretty remarkable. I mean, as a, uh, I'm not talking historically, as a poetic, self-conscious thing, it could be remarkable if you know what's going on. That's all. It is 100%. And I'm so glad to know that doing a little with kavana with intention is better than doing a lot without <laughs> to know that that's halakhic precedent that helps me a little bit that's true I, with regard to psuki to zimra but not with regard to the shema okay the sure <laughs> sure okay. <laughs> we, we got to say the whole things of that yeah, that makes right. sense but also just how much the world of the sidur is open to you when even you've discovered a few of these things each of them can be potent and powerful and you don't know which one is going to really hit or shine for you until you have the whole spread of them open up before you. It's really powerful. If there's someone who wanted to learn more about Sidur in this kind of poetic, more intellectual way, where would you suggest that they start? The Sidur is very large, you know, where should we begin here? Oh, I would start with Bechot HaShachar. The morning prayer, I would start with a prayer after defecation urination, Asher mm. Yatsar. The appreciation of the body, right? It was remarkable, right? At one time, was, oh, I had to teach a group of nuns something about Judaism. <laughs> so what am I going to do? So I taught them Asher Yatsar. I taught them, here's a blessing. After every urination defecation, you express an appreciation for how wisely your body is built. It's a wonder. Look at your body. It's an expression of wonder. The things sometimes break down. When you think of the complexity, how rarely it breaks down, it's better than my <laughs> computer. Right? And then I would go to El Haine Shema, go from the body to the soul. And I would spend time on those two prayers, mm. and you've said quite a bit already. Right? And we rush through them. Yeah. I mean, I say them every morning. I, I Normally, I have a lot of work to do in the morning, and I rush through them. But on Shabbat, I don't rush through them. I have nowhere to go. It's wonderful. You get it? So I focus your attention on it. And the fact that every time I come out of the bathroom, I say a blessing, thank God for such a wisely b'chachma, and it's my free last soul. You get it? It's a wonder. My body is mm -hmm. wondrous. That's just, I can't think of anything better. Because when you think your body is wondrous, you think, well, why is it so wondrous? And you begin to appreciate Adon Hanifalot, the master of wonders. That's how I would do it. And then I would do the Bechot mm HaShachar, -hmm. each one of them. I, would, uh, I used to teach uh -huh. <laughs> elementary school and had every kid act it out. They would act out the blessings. They would go around. They would. I would say to them, "Open your, put your hands up in the air, make them wide." Now turn around, and we would say each Baruch Ata each one. And then the last words, we'd cover our eyes and say, "Hokechivrim," or we would cut our clothes, "Malbish Aramim." I did this for ten years old. Ten year olds, they loved it. But, that, but what we do is we mm -hmm. put it back in the original context. So original context is, I think, extraordinarily important. Extraordinarily important, and. I hope, listener, you realize that we could have spent hours upon hours upon hours here talking about any one piece of liturgy, any one piece of text. There is so much more to learn. And I really appreciate that you joined us today to give us even a little taste of the poetry and the structure of the Sidur. And I hope 
when your book is published that you'll be back on to share even more gems with us. Thank you so, so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure and thank you for inviting me. And it's a wonderful opportunity to get people involved in the Siddur and in prayer. Amen. Amen. And thank you so much for listening. Again, you can sign up for our three-week course in the various parts of the Shema, a deep dive into the Shema. Those Wednesday classes are going to be with Professor Kimmelman. The Thursday evening sessions are going to be with me. You don't have to come to all of them. Sign up for the ones that you can. We really hope to see you there. Our podcast is edited by Christy Dodge. Thank you, Christy. Our show notes are done by Yaffa Englander. Thank you, Yaffa. Our theme song is A New Light by me, and I hope to see you and learn with you very soon. Take care, friends.